Welcome uh, to uh, another interview held by uh, EFSOS. Uh, this time we have with us uh, Mr. Marc Finot, who is a former uh, French diplomat, who has been seconded to the Geneva Center for Security Policy, uh, GCSP, between 2004 and 2013, and uh, then worked uh, there until 2022 to train diplomats and military officers in arms control, international and human security, uh, while also conducting research in those fields. Um, during his 36-year career as a diplomat, he served in several bilateral postings in the Soviet Union, Poland, Israel, Australia, as well as in multilateral missions to the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, the Conference on Disarmament, the United Nations. Um, he holds a master's degree in international law and political science. Um, he was also a senior resident fellow uh, of the WMD program at the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research between 2013 and 2015. Um, now you're a French, uh, you're a Swiss citizen and you remain associated with uh, the Geneva Center for Security and Policy as a senior advisor and a fellow. And in addition, now you also work as a private uh, consultant. So, uh, Mr. Marcano, thank you for joining us and, and welcome. Yeah, thank you for the, uh, the nice introduction and, and the, uh, this invitation, this opportunity um, to talk about, of course, uh, global issues, but also regional issues. Uh, as you mentioned, I have been posted uh, um, not really in Asian countries, but in in a place which um, now is usually called the uh, Middle East, but it can be also called Western Asia, depending on where you sit. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, the Middle East is closer to Europe, and and therefore it it explains actually why we use this term and and why in Europe we have we still have a lot of interest and stakes and uh, involvement. Uh, in this region because it's it's been affected by conflict for many years and it's also related to the, uh, the heritage of the colonial period. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, this region is also affected by what's going on uh, east of the Middle East, meaning um, Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, South Asia. Um, now we can see that uh, the Middle East for many years was mostly an area of transit for migration from uh, far eastern countries. Uh, but now it's it's also both a, a zone of transit and, and a zone of emigration to Europe. But it's also affected by a phenomenon of migration itself, uh, mostly for people um, coming from conflict areas. Mm. And uh, of course, we have a number of people who are internally displaced persons, IDPs. So we have both refugees and IDPs with a high concentration because this is a natural phenomenon that you can also find in other parts of Asia, such as Pakistan because of Afghanistan, uh, where you see a lot of refugees wanting to remain as close as possible um, to home because it, they, they still nurture the hope of returning uh, home. Mm 
and uh, Mr. Tino, how, how did like we were of course starting off with with the with the with the Middle East and 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 the refugee problem, and of course how connected it is with South Asia. But first of all, you know, you have been a diplomat for for a very very long time. Uh, I even saw some pictures of yours with 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 great world leaders uh, somewhere uh, on the internet. And now you're an academic, um, or you have been an academic for, for quite some time with the Geneva Center for uh, Security Policy. You've engaged with the UN. So how did this come about that you started off as a diplomat and now you're um, an, an academic, you have been a researcher and now also an expert on, on nuclear security? Um, so maybe you can tell a little bit about this this career of yours and perhaps even share some some anecdotes uh, of your uh, of your time as a diplomat. Yes, of course. When I started as a junior diplomat, of course, I I had my own academic background, as you said, the master's degrees in uh, international law and then political science, which I think are two approaches of international issues which complement each other. Uh, you cannot only uh, you know, stick to the legal approach because sometimes you would ignore the geopolitical considerations. But if you only stick to the to geopolitics, you, you lack, again, some aspects which are, in my view, very important, especially if, if we want to, um, to promote multilateralism as the most effective solution to the challenges of today's world. But of course, when I, I, I was a diplomat, I was involved in implementing uh, government politics and policies. And, and therefore, uh, my uh, expression, like uh, most countries, diplomats, civil servants, of officials, are, have only a very limited um, uh, freedom of expression. They have to, when they express themselves publicly, when they write and publish, now, of course, it's much easier thanks to social media. Obviously, uh, there are some constraints. Uh, they have to reply, to promote, to defend national uh, policy. And it's very difficult for them to be critical. And you know, we used to have a minister of government in France who was very vocal. And because he disagreed with the policy at that time of, of the president, this was under François Mitterrand, um, especially about the uh, the France that uh, the fact that France took part in the first Gulf War as part of the UN sanction uh, coalition to liberate Kuwait, he he just resigned and he said, and he mentioned something which now has sort of we we remain. Uh, like like um, like a mantra in in French politics, which I think is is applicable everywhere. If you're a government official and you disagree, either you shut up or you dis or you dis uh, um, you resign. So this is this is what he did. So of course I didn't resign um, because I disagreed with my government, but. On several occasions, I had some differences of views, and I realized that the way to, to promote a different approach, um, especially on sensitive issues like security, uh, uh, arms control, again, it's very, very difficult. So I was actually fortunate 
because I worked with a senior ambassador in Geneva, in my first tour when I was at the conference on disarmament. And this ambassador, of course, was politically close to the president. And he was transferred to be the president's diplomatic advisor. You know, we call them Sherpas because of the G7. But um, because he had this background, this experience in disarmament, where, of course, he had to apply the official line, which, and, and, and many times he disagreed with that line. So he had this opportunity, once he joined the office of the president, to convince the president to change the policy. And this is how the president eventually presented to the uh, UN uh, a disarmament plan back in 1991. So France acceded to the non-proliferation treaty, ratified the Biological Weapons Convention, uh, um, gave a final impulse to the negotiation of the Chemical Weapons Convention. And, and you know, basically um, launch a, a momentum in the disarmament process. So that was a, a good experience, but then I realized that this was possible only because the, the, the ambassador was close to the president and he managed to convince him to change the policy, but within the system. Mm -hmm. So I realized that perhaps there would be more opportunities outside the system. And this is why, again, I, I didn't uh, apply for it, but I was offered this position at the Geneva Center. First, uh, on secondment, which meant that I was still part of the French Foreign Service. So my freedom of expression was a little bit larger, but not complete. And then mm -hmm. when I had a chance, I... I was offered early retirement, and then I decided to stay and, and work completely for this organization because I realized that this is a, a wonderful opportunity to do both research, training, teaching, you know, to become an academic, but benefit from the experience as an official in, in working in government. So I had this dual experience, if you like, and, and of course, being being an academic is, is not only just relying on, on your degrees, your diplomas, but it's learning every day, Te you know, teaching and learning at the same time. And this is this framework where I work was uh, extremely useful because this was an international framework. We had people, actually not students, but professionals diplomats, military officers, international civil servants, people working in NGOs, coming from the whole world with their own profile and experience. So this is very rewarding when you, you talk to people and I mean, you think you know something about their country or the conflict they, they, are, they are going through and they actually teach you more. Mm. And also research is something very rewarding because you can focus on some areas, you can discover new areas. And the most important thing I think, and this is was facilitated from being uh, embedded in this entire international environment in Geneva, in, in the capital of multilateralism, you realize that all the challenges 
of today's world are interconnected. And that means that no one, including the most powerful country in the world, as this was recognized by the US Secretary of State, Blinken, in the Security Council view a couple of years ago, no one can deal with these issues alone. Uh, this is what you need cooperation, you need multilateral diplomacy, multilateral agreements, treaties, etc. Now the problem is, as we know, we are confronted with a fine, sort of re return to great power politics, um, unilateralism, or mini-lateralism, small groups like G7 uh, or BRICS, you know, trying to compete with, uh, with the others. And, and of course, multilateralism is suffering from that, although it remains with, you know, we have evidence of this every day. The, the best solution and the most effective solution to, to address our, our challenges. And, and you talk about multilateralism, as you know, we, we, we are, of course, an, uh, an institution which concentrates mostly on, on the region of South Asia. Um, and we have taken the liberty, of course, because of its influences, to include within South Asia, uh, Afghanistan, but also China, um, while technically, you know, some people might disagree uh, with, with that. Um, now, now com coming to South Asia, of course, there is a, there, there are some efforts of multilateralism uh, in the in the shape of the of the of the SARC, for example, uh, and now you have India's policy of uh, Southeast Asia, uh, but there are also many obstacles, and um, you have discussed this previously as well in in one of your talks. Um, can you explain? Because many people think that the nuclear powers, India and Pakistan, uh, are in relation to each other, while actually. India became a nuclear power in response to China becoming a nuclear power. And then Pakistan became a nuclear power in response to India becoming a nuclear power. So can you explain a bit of that history for the people listening, uh, how, how that worked out? Yes. Um, first thing to remember um, is that nuclear proliferation, the number of countries acquiring the bomb, uh, increasing basically or most likely was uh, the result of the existing nuclear powers helping new ones mm -hmm. yeah i mean you, have, you may have seen the, this, the film oppenheimer and mm -hmm. there's a hint that even some american scientists have the soviets uh, de develop their own nuclear program because they didn't want the u.s to have a monopoly and of course the soviet union then helped china and china helped Pakistan and uh, France helped Israel and South Africa, etc. So th this phenomenon of proliferation, which now we consider as very dangerous, if we have to stop it, and there's a treaty to prevent that, it was sort of natural phenomenon for many years. It was, of course, linked to how politics uh, and influence, containment, uh, in the case of the Soviet Union, uh, big, you know, building big alliances against uh, big powers, um, and because the initial uh, nuclear powers, especially the two superpowers uh, at that time, the U.S. and 
the Soviet Union, Union you know, developed their arsenals on, you know, sort of completely irrational way. You know, now we have figures which we don't even grasp today of uh, over 100,000 nuclear weapons being built by those two countries. Of course, in the mean, then they started reducing, but the peak uh, in the Cold War was like 70,000 for all nuclear powers in 1987. So we still didn't have, uh, we, we already had, of course, the five plus uh, Israel, South Africa that then disarmed. But then we had um, India, Pakistan, North Korea. And, and then, of course, uh, those so-called small, smaller nuclear countries, um, you know, they had their regional issues. They had their fears of big neighbor, India versus China, Pakistan versus India. And, and North Korea also wanting to, to protect itself from any action from the, from the US. Particularly because they do, do, I, do yeah. I in your in your explanation also sense a little bit of, of course how it went, but also a little bit of justification in uh, with regard to the perspective from those countries that because the U.S., America, and you know the, the Russia, all these countries were becoming nuclear powers, they also had to. Exactly. I mean, of course, this is the the main challenge uh, when you study. Uh, arms proliferation, nuclear proliferation, you have to go to the origin of you know, why yeah. a country government decides to um, take this step. And usually their motivations are diverse. Uh, of course, for North Korea, it's, it's clear that it's re regime survival because it's not a democratic country. Mm -hmm. But in India, this was India is a democratic country, but they, they had this, this fear, uh, this belief that uh, China would become too powerful and they therefore need, needed to balance uh, their capacities with uh, nuclear weapons. Also in the response of the Indo-China war, of course. Exactly, exactly. And one of their, their, their motivations is certainly the fact that looking at the examples of others. Now, if you have powerful countries that officially claim as part of their defense policy that nuclear weapons are the best weapons, the ultimate weapons, of course, you know, they can't say, which unfortunately they are saying now, do as we tell you, but not as we do. Mm -hmm. So the, the power of the example is, is, is very strong. But again, there are a number of local, regional considerations that, that of course, can, 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 be, can have a de determining factor in the, in the decision. Like France, the case of France, you know, one of the victors of the Second World War, it could have been completely, it was allied of the United States, could rely on defense, provided by the United States like the other NATO countries, but now it, because it had, in, 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 a, in the leadership, you had this um, sort of 
memory, uh, consciously or not, of past defeats. The uh, third, three, three wars with Germany uh, in, in, in a century. Of course, France lost one and was among the victors in the two world wars, but that did play uh, a role because French territory was invaded, was occupied. And then you had another factor um, at the beginning of the Cold War, when France jointly with the UK, uh, because France was at war with the uh, independentist movement in Algeria. And that movement was supported by Nasser in Egypt. France uh, got this alliance with the UK because when, the, when Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal, France and UK decided to, to uh, bomb uh, Egypt, to invade uh, Egypt and, and Suez Canal. And the reaction by the two superpowers at that time, the US and, and the Soviet Union, was no, you're crossing a red line. Uh, so go back to your old, you know, um, sort of post colonial attitude, non-intervention. Non and, and the threat was felt very, very vividly in France by the leaders, you know, being in a sense threatened by two nuclear powers um, and, and they had, I mean, UK and France had to stop. UK was already advanced in its uh, national nuclear program, but very dependent on the US. And this is where France decided with the assistance of Israel, and actually this worked both ways, uh, to develop its uh, nu nuclear program. And of course, when the goal uh, reached uh, into power in government in 1958, he decided to continue that program because it, this became a sort of synonym of independence, national sovereignty, um, you know, uh, being, being part of the, the group, the club of, of the big powers. So that, again, I, I'm not, again, trying to justify, and as you know now, I'm also part of uh, NGOs that- uh, but it's, That is the explanation why, why, why- of Yeah, exactly. So it, it's, it's interesting to, again, research in history. Uh, and, and so, and again, you can apply the, the same criteria to other countries as well. And if you look, look at South Asia, uh, and of course, the, the, there's a history uh, to it, why it happened. It, it has been a conflict-ridden uh, zone, of course, also due to colonialism, and then uh, regional uh, regional issues between between countries. Um, as far as I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think Pakistan is the only country among these three which has not an announced no first use policy. Uh, I think the Chinese and the Indians have uh, adapted a no first use policy. Uh, and, you know, going forward on that, um, because this this was this mainly we're talking about nuclear security, but in the backdrop of terrorism, which is in, in, you know, in the West or as we know terrorism today, it's quite a new phenomena. Um, and there have been many voices, for example, uh, the U.S., I think, Secretary Blinken, but but even people before him uh, and other people in the West have talked about 
this phenomena of terrorism in the South Asian region with these countries being um, being very uh, being very powerful, but also nuclear countries uh, in two in two dimensions. One, of course, that how safe are, for example, uh, is, for example, Pakistan's nuclear arsenal because of the many terrorist organizations in that country. And the second is that how safe, you know, what are the chances of India and Pakistan going to war and then escalating into a nuclear war due to terrorism? So maybe you can you can shed some light on that. Yes, yes, of course. Um, you know, when you when you talk about uh, nuclear issues, you can of course focus on on regulation, arms control, disarmament. Uh, you know, basically everybody agrees on the long-term goal of world without nuclear weapons because people realize they're too dangerous. Um, but there is another aspect which, of course, sometimes is underestimated, which is called nuclear risk reduction. And one doesn't replace the other because, like, I I support some projects and organizations that advocate, for instance, no first use, but I also advocate the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. It's, oh, it's, it's, I would say it's, it's part of the same concern because you may, um, uh, you know, may, may have a good conscience and say, okay, uh, we have a treaty to ban nuclear weapons, but if something bad happens, in the meantime, people who will, die and suffer will not be you know concerned whether it was legal or not you know this will have happened unfortunately and this is what we, we i think we should have the priority to prevent so you have a number of initiatives proposals uh, ideas um, which have been discussed floated around for many years how to reduce the nuclear risk now the nuclear risk is, of course, assessed by experts, not only in uh, nuclear armed countries. You have, for instance, the so-called doomsday clock, which was established uh, immediately at, at the beginning of the nuclear age by a number of uh, nuclear scientists who uh, created the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And every year, these scientists, and, and now this group includes 14 Nobel uh, Prize laureates. So it's not just a bunch of pacifists, you know, there are serious people. And they evaluate the risk of global catastrophe, which of course may occur mostly from a nuclear explosion, nuclear war or accident. And of course they include now more, uh, so I would, I would say additional risks related to climate change, or terrorism, or you know, global disasters. And uh, they measure this risk and they, they have this symbolic clock with the, the big hand gets closer to midnight, which is supposed to be the, the symbol of the apocalypse, back and forth, depending on whether the risk increases or decreases. So when I was born, in, you know, back in 1953, the, the big hand was at 100 seconds to midnight. Uh, you know, this was the beginning of the arms race. 
then it went back yeah it was because uh we had more arms control treaties uh, more control etc but then gradually it uh, got closer and now we are at 60 seconds no sorry 90 seconds which is already very close to midnight because precisely it, among the risks of uh, nuclear catastrophe they include the risk of um, um, uh, hijacking uh, looting uh, illegal uh, use uh, unauthorized use accidents uh, loss of nuclear weapons you know there have been cases uh, where nuclear weapons were just lost and there are six of them which ne haven't never been recovered they are somewhere in in an ocean or in a desert and the more you add actors like this happened in the past couple of decades the more you increase also um technology the dependency reliance on technology like now artificial intelligence um, um, quantum computing nanotechnologies uh, you actually increase the risk and and of course terrorism was considered as one of the potential risks that nuclear weapons could be stolen hijacked um detonated uh, by non-state actors uncontrolled groups and this is obviously related to the degree of safety and, and security and uh, order and, and protection how do you assess how do you assess this risk in in south asia in with with the many terrorist groups well, operating there first first this triangle in in south asia with china india and pakistan is very volatile because we have past conflict potential conflict and still you know, current conflicts some of which are related to terrorist attacks we have seen this between india and pakistan between india and china it's more, more contested boundaries boundaries uh, borders uh, definition etc and anything can happen when mm -hmm. when you have the potential of resort to nuclear weapons you can have an escalation of incidents that can go very fast and get out of control like another now, Mumbai, for example yes exactly well you have you know like in in most countries most countries with nuclear weapons you have distinction between strategic weapons with long range missiles bombers uh to to attack long you know long distance uh, targets um but you also have so-called tactical nuclear weapons uh short range lower lower yield meaning lower destructive power which is in itself is it's is a form of incentive to use them in in war fighting mm -hmm. and this is what is most likely to happen perhaps conventional uh confrontation escalating to the use of short-range tactical nuclear weapons and then of course uh up, you know uh, upgraded to strategic or uh, all-out uh, all uh, nuclear war and the risk exists not only in, in conflict-prone countries but 
in other countries, including Western countries uh, versus Russia. Isn't there, a, isn't there a discrepancy in this in, in this triangle? Uh, for example, I think you write that, and 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 I've read it as well. That the difference is that uh, again, all these countries are different kind of government, you know, rule here. Of course, you have in China, you have the Communist Party, India, uh, uh, democracy, and Pakistan, uh, somewhere in between. Um, but as you write as well, and as I've read as well, in India and China, eventually, the control of nuclear weapons rests with uh, it, its political control, while in Pakistan, it's military control. So. Uh, how do you how do you explain this discrepancy in the event of an because a military when you know faced with war uh, will 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 go maybe quicker to to the nuclear weapon than than politicians so how how do you explain this discrepancy? Yeah, I'm actually the risk exists both ways, you know, because you can have a completely rational political leader that you know we have seen that in the us uh, with trump uh that actually mentioned the use of nuclear weapons threatening some some countries um and fortunately in in most advanced countries you have a, a number of um barriers uh, you know, means of identifying who gives the order it's delegated. It's a chain of command. So, uh, and and also in some countries, including Russia, uh, and I think this is rather reassuring. Um, you have a system of um, separation of nuclear warheads from missiles or, or bombers from means of delivery. And, and this is also the case mostly in China, in India and Pakistan, because they realize, you know, because of the volatility, you need to be able to assess the risk. And if you, for instance, as it happened with the Soviet Union, you detect a launch of missiles, an attack from the US or from NATO, you need the time to check whether this is true or not, because if you just retaliate with a nuclear strike, and actually this was a mistake, you know, this is considered as a first strike, and that will trigger a retaliation. So it's a good thing that in China, in India, and Pakistan, there is this extra precaution to keep the the the, the weapons or the warheads and and the means of delivery separate. The problem is how much you know, how much distance, how much time you would need to uh, reassemble them. Um, that's difficult to know, but at least there should be uh, encouragement by you know the international community uh, in this international dialogue for maintaining. Uh, uh, this type of precaution. That's a means of reducing the nuclear risk. There are other uh -huh. means, of course, uh, like de-targeting, uh, de-alerting, uh, you know, and that it, it, this is, of course, what, what states and, and multilateralism can do. But you just touched upon previously about non-state actors, of course. So 
uh, which uh, again, like that risk in France or that risk in the US is lesser because of the because of the tight controls and not uh, a big terrorism playing field. Uh, South Asia, of course, with Afghanistan next door, has been uh, a play field of terrorism for the last 30, 40 years. Um, so that non-state actor risk of terrorism, uh, how much often worry is it in South Asia and how do you counter it? Again, uh, there are a number of uh, considerations here. For If you take the case of Pakistan, Again, if you if you believe what the government says, the government says it's completely under control. So there is no risk of access uh, by by non-state actors. Uh, so it's a reassuring discourse. Interestingly enough, the United States mostly uh, agrees with that, supports this fairly uh, optimistic approach. But at the, the same time, of course, when there were serious uh, troubles, terrorist attacks, both in Pakistan and India, the US expressed some, some concern. Uh, in India, there is not so much talk about risk of non-state actor, uh, actors exceeding uh, nuclear weapons, because the, the control system seems to be fairly tight uh, and secure. The problem is uh, you know, this uh, sequence of events that could start with the terrorist attack, like the case of Mumbai attack, which is attributed to Pakistan, and that could trigger a reaction, uh, an escalation, which again can lead to, to nuclear war. Um, again, that's certainly part of the the risk factors that need to be addressed. So it's not only just the the idea of, uh, you know. So why do you think it, it didn't happen? Like for example, when Mumbai happened, why did it, or, or I think previously, when the two countries came at, at almost a war was in 2001 with the Indian parliament attack, when the forces, you know, went to the international border and had a standoff. Um, why do you think it, it, it never escalated? Is that due to international intervention? Is that due to uh, thinking on either side, uh, you know, rational thinking that we shouldn't go this far? What do you think uh, yes. worked? Uh, I think it's a combination of factors. Of course, there was a lot of international concern expressed at that time, trying to call for restraint and uh, avoiding escalation. On both sides, obviously, there is this understanding that uh, it can be a very risky situation, uh, which may get out of hand. Uh, that you know, with go going back to this, for instance, the, the differences in the arsenals of the various countries, uh, even if they are separate from means of delivery, in the case of Pakistan, and th there seems to be some evolution in the, the nuclear doctrine which is more difficult to, to, to actually assess because of lack of transparency. But there seems to be reference by some military leaders recently to the, the ranch, you know, from the whole ranch. Um, usually when we talk about short ranch in 
when you talk about missiles or uh, bombs to be delivered by um, aircraft, you talk around 500, six, 700 kilometers to be safe from your own country to avoid um, fallout and, and negative, uh, you know, negative effect on your own forces. But in this particular case, there was a trend, strange reference to a zero kilometer wreck, meaning, you know, that Pakistan could even have what, which was the case in the Cold War in the NATO uh, nuclear mines or nuclear shells or, uh, you know, very small devices, but are still nuclear and can, of course, cause a lot of damage, including to your own forces or, or civilians. So that's, again, that can uh, add to, to the risk because the, the, the tendency is once you have the whole panoply and you say, okay, we can use these weapons just like conventional weapons, uh, then you, it's very difficult to stop the escalation. Okay, and that, that is, of course, in terms of uh, an, an, uh, terrorism um, provoking action from two states. Um, now, what about, because many terrorist groups have, um, you know, have had the ambition to overthrow governments in these, in these various countries, mostly of them Islamist uh, terrorist organizations. Um, and again, it's perhaps a far, you know, a far-fetched idea, uh, but some of these groups have also expressed the ambition to get hold of nuclear weapons. And I'm not saying, because as you just said, uh, the military in Pakistan has expressed that they are very much in control and the international community seems to be satisfied with that. But then again, as uh, many of these, or some of these countries have, of course, acquired nuclear weapons on the black market. Uh, North Korea, and of course, uh, there are some allegations towards uh, Pakistan as well, Iran. Um, so what are the chances of terrorist groups, whether in this region, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, get if they don't get it from you know overthrowing governments, um, but they get it on the black market. Uh, see Afghanistan. Taliban is currently in power. If we just turn that around and we say, Suddenly, the Taliban or the TTP is in power in Pakistan. Then it suddenly is, you know, a terrorist group running a country with nuclear weapons. So, what are those chances? It, also on the black market, of course. Sure. No, as I said, these are of course factors of uh, instability, of vulnerability, of risks. Um, you know, it's very, very difficult to speculate uh, what what could happen. Uh, we have some experience. I mean. Uh, countries in the region have their own experience, uh, lots of casualties, uh, fatalities dealing with uh, terrorist attacks, but you have a whole diversity of uh, motivations. There is some terrorist groups are purely um, religiously uh, motivated, some are uh, separatist groups, some are, you know, have very, very narrow agendas. Uh, they can create a lot of uh, trouble and a lot of uh, victims. Um, but they even, you know, a huge country like India, which is suffering a lot of uh, terrorist attacks internally, 
um, you know, still remains fairly strong system of government, uh, and and so there's no risk of immediate collapse. But as you could say, that there, yes, there are some risks that some sm smuggling, uh, black market uh, transactions can occur. I would say this is uh, this actually is also related to um, um, civil nuclear power. Uh, you know, nuclear energy is uh, also used for civilian power to generate electricity or research. And this is where probably uh, these facilities are the most vulnerable, not only in India and Pakistan, but also in, in, in uh, Western countries. And, uh, you know, and you can see what's happening in Ukraine with power plants uh, you know, being in, in the middle of a uh, war zone. Uh, that shows that, um, again, nuclear energy as, as a whole, as a, as a means of energy, whether it's used for peaceful purposes or military purposes, is still very dangerous. So what is more likely to happen, uh, and this is happening, actually, there is a database uh, in the International Atomic Energy Agency, which uh, publishes data of course, um, reported by member states on uh, cases of seizures by customs, border control of uh, nuclear or radioactive material that can come from civilian power plants, uh, hospitals, uh, you know, research facilities, labs, etc. Now, these quantities, unfortunately, are very small, I mean, even if the number of incidents is, is fairly high, then the quantities are small, then they could at worst uh, help create what is called dirty bomb. And I don't like this mm -hmm. term because it implies that nuclear uh, bomb is clean. But yeah. you know, this just a, a means to spread radioactive material using conventional explosive and not cause mass casualties, but create panic, uh, havoc, huge cost in uh, decontamination, etc. So this, this may be uh, new factors of risk that we have to address. And then, um, so uh, that's the terrorism part. You, of course, talked about the Cold War and where it all started. Um, there seems to be a new Cold War, um, mainly between uh, maybe the U.S. and China. Uh, and I think China is also engaged in a lot of hot wars within its region. You have Taiwan, of course. Uh, you have the Xinjiang province, the Uyghurs, uh, the minority there. You have, of course, its issues with India. Um, so how do you see this panning out, this new kind of Cold War? With, of course... Um, many analysts believe that China is a different animal than the Soviet Union. Yes, of course, each case is different. Um, the, the current context is, you know, certainly can include some similarities with the past experience with the Soviet Union, but because we're dealing uh, now with, a, of course, a new superpower economically with a lot uh, huge population, um, but at the same time, 
we realize that uh, sometimes the this idea, the fear of China becoming a, a new superpower and, and imposing its will to the rest of the world is a little bit exaggerated. And mm -hmm. this is legitimate in a sense because the United States always needed a, a, an ideal um, enemy. And, but fortunately, there is some diversity of opinion in, in, within the US you have including among the conservatives, actually, uh, you have some people who are reluctant to start a, 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 you know, to react to this rise of China by means of increasing armament, increasing military presence, increasing confrontation. Uh, we know that economically, both big powers are interdependent. You know, no one can actually do without the other. Um, so there's no risk of, you know, economic war. You know, it, there, there is some form of competition, but they know that uh, each country needs the other. And from a military point of view, sometimes in the U.S. you have this idea that, you know, it's it's uh, again. Um, but do do you think it has to do with the fact that the U.S. or the West? and in some cases quite rightfully so, but considers China more expansionist than the Soviet Union? Of course, it is a risk, which again is, is, is assessed uh, objectively because you can see what China is after, especially in South China Sea. You just want to make sure that there's no obstacle, no foreign presence that could uh, be an obstacle to its uh, freedom of navigation because it's so dependent on export and imports from the rest of the world. So that's its main um, motivation. Um, Taiwan, I would say, is a specific case uh, which fortunately so far has been treated peacefully and I hope it will remain so. And and uh, I don't think, again, it would be appropriate, uh, especially for some parties in the US to, to advocate uh, use of force uh, in a prevent preemptive way, for instance, that could only lead to disaster. But also we have to be objective, realistic, uh, sober. When you compare the military might of the United States with, you know, first military budget in the world, $800 billion, uh, the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world after Russia, um, you know, huge conventional forces, 800 military bases throughout the world, which China, which is of course now in the increase, it's in, uh, increasing its capacities, building new, uh, silos for missiles, but even if it's double its current number of its arsenal, that would still represent 10% of the US arsenal for a population four times larger. So again, we have to put things into balance and, and perspective. Uh, and the problem is that, uh, of course, there was a, a, a good bilateral framework 
established after the, the Cuban missile crisis between US and Soviet Union because of you know, the, the, the bilateral risk, the risk of bilateral conflict and, and escalation. And not much has been done to integrate uh, China into a collective approach. Now, um, Trump has tried, but he, this was you know, bound to fail. It was... Uh, and now it's never, no, it's never uh, completely lost. First, again, I believe in the power of the example. For, for instance, you have a treaty like the Comprehensive uh, Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. It's been signed by the US, but not ratified. So China, again, signed, but didn't ratify. So it's just waiting for the US to ratify. It, of course, it's a domestic political issue. They need the votes in the Senate, but no president has really tried to lose some political capital um, by doing that, by, by ratifying. And then you need to convince, of course, if, if China ratifies, then it will be easier to convince India, Pakistan, North Korea to join. And then, and then that means that the treaty will enter into force and China will be part of this mechanism. Uh, now, all countries with nuclear weapons, the nine, so including India, China, Pakistan um, and North Korea and Israel, they are all members of the Conference on Disarmament here in Geneva. Uh, but of course, there's not been any consensus, any agreement. You have the P5, of course, happen to be permanent members of the Security Council, and therefore they consider themselves as having some extra privileges. And they've made some statements which are useful, you know, saying, for instance, that what Gorbachev and, uh, and Reagan said that uh, nobody can win a, a nuclear war, therefore no nuclear war should be fought. You know, if all nine countries would say that, that would certainly create better, uh, you know, probably better control of the risk. And if they all accepted uh, no first use, again, it would be better for, for all of us. Yeah, but many of these countries have, of course, acquired nuclear wars to stalemate uh, positions between between two between a smaller and a bigger country. Um, and you 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 talked in the beginning, and I'm coming to the end of this interview, so I would I would like to go towards the 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 beginning you started off with, which is of course the multilateralism. Um, and how do you see, for example? This, this, what you were discussing about all these countries coming together at the platform, and 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 you know taking forward the agreements that are already there uh, um, about no first use policy and 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 other things. So how do you see, for example, the various small multilateral platforms which are already there? Do you see them actually, you know? Um, providing a foundation to get there or actually hampering a foundation like you have you have the quad you have the sark um you have uh the uh, what is it the, the bricks i guess uh then you have of course this uh the bri uh which is you know china's project but many countries are included so do you think these multilateral platforms whether economical military or political do they actually hamper it or do they provide foundation? 
they can play a very useful role in um, what I would call peer pressure, peer review. You know, among like-minded countries, it's easier than within the UN where you have so much diversity. Uh, and what I, I, I notice, of course, that now there is this uh, gap, this division, this cleavage between countries which are party to the non-proliferation treaty, so they agreed not to acquire nuclear weapons, but at the same time, they believe that more should be done because the nuclear powers didn't fulfill their pledge of disarmament. And that's why they uh, adopted the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Now, we know that this treaty is rejected by all the nuclear armed countries. So not only the P5 plus, you know, India, Pakistan, North Korea, Israel, and their allies, NATO allies, etc. So in a smaller format like BRICS, for instance, you know, Brazil and South Africa signed the treaty. So they can demonstrate that their security is not diminished. On the contrary, they know they feel confident that they're part of a broader community. Actually half of the members of the General Assembly signed the treaty. So it's not you know, just a, a few isolated countries. So again, in uh, ASEAN, in uh, SARC, in uh, other frameworks, they can show that by joining this treaty, not only their security is not threatened, but on the contrary, they feel more confident and they, they will actually benefit. I mean, take countries like Kazakhstan. You know, Kazakhstan for many years was the, the testing site of the Soviet nuclear weapons. So huge disaster, lots of casualties. Now they're leading the way to sign the, uh, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the uh, Treaty on Prohibiting Nuclear Tests, the uh, Regional uh, Nuclear Weapon Free Zone. Australia, which suffered also from the uh, nuclear test by the UK, could also join and, and show the example. You know, it did so, and there is a treaty also a Nuclear Weapon Free Zone in the South Pacific, which was against French nuclear testing. But now, Australia is, of course, still not considering becoming a nuclear country, but acquiring nuclear submarines, nuclear-powered submarines, which is a step you know, towards more proliferation. So again, the, in these regional frameworks, there could be more promotion, more um, advocacy for uh, nuclear disarmament. And of course, probably these countries will say that nuclear disarmament should be preceded by regional conflicts first being solved. Um, so it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's yeah. actually, you know, they sort of fuel each other uh, in the sense that uh, sometimes nuclear weapons give countries this uh, self-confidence that they can attack their neighbors like Russia did with Ukraine. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you cannot get rid of nuclear weapons un unless you do something about the root causes of, of conflict. And you have, of course, and this is my last question to just, you know, and it perhaps in the largest multilateral forum there is, and you have worked a lot with the United Nations, of course. So um, what role does the UN and its various arms, including the UN Security Council, but also the UN Human Rights Council, what, what role can the UN 
play and do you think it has actually not played enough overall? Well, you know, the UN is a framework. It's an organization of states. So it's run by states. And so it depends very much on what states do and decide what their uh, mutual relations uh, influence is. Of course, we can see that Security Council is paralyzed by the veto of the big powers. Uh, but the General Assembly represents the world democracy. It's called the Parliament of Man. And it's this is where you know things can be done, agreements can be negotiated. This has been the case on many issues, human rights, uh, climate change, uh, development. You know, we have the SDGs, which really is sort of common heritage uh, where you know, all states actually do work together uh, to solve the, the problems of this planet. Yeah. Probably the UN has, of course, become a, a lot, uh, a lot more uh, of a political platform uh, than actually uh, working towards the betterment of 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 uh, of everyone, irrespective of political considerations. Um, uh, Mr. Fino, both actually, <laughs> of course. Um, Mr. Fino, thank you very much for this very enlightening, uh, you know, uh, conversation on on a subject which is overlooked uh, too often. And, and I think people don't understand much about it. We of course have heard those stories of a nuclear uh, nuclear war and, 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 and the things that happen in Japan, but we have no realization of how these things, of course, between states, uh, states work. And it was very interesting to hear from you, these nuances of, uh, of how things uh, develop between countries. And I hope indeed that your work um, with the G, uh, GCSP and, and, and the other organizations that someday uh, we might live in a nuclear-free world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.